If you have a Bible, you can open it to Hebrews chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to begin a series on this unique New Testament epistle, this letter to the Hebrews. And over the next weeks, coming weeks, I'm not exactly sure how long it will take, a couple of months, two, three, four months, who knows. Uh, we'll work through this, this letter to the Hebrews. It's a, an interesting um, bit of the New Testament. It's, it's a, a letter written to Christians, but it doesn't have the form of a letter at all. It actually has the form of a sermon. It's a written sermon. And so it's very unique in, in the way that it flows and the way that it, it sounds to our ears. It's written to a first century church, and therefore to all of the church, for very particular reasons. It's written to doubting and distracted and even fading Christians. And in the words that this writer gives to us, he tells us that God has spoken. And in God's words, he has set a race before us. And so he, he, he asks us, this writer does, are you running that race? Are you running that race? We'll begin with just the first three verses of Hebrews 1, and then I'll read as well chapter 2, verse 1, along with it. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And now chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. O Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit and fill us with faith. Because, Lord, if you don't, if you don't come and meet with us, then we will be groping about in the darkness of our own thoughts apart from seeing the light. And we pray, God, that you would not allow that to be, but rather give us ability to understand by your Spirit what your gospel calls us to. In this your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, those of you who are up on the local sports scene, and I know that not all of you are, but I'm going to help you. You might know that the Dallas Mavericks and the San Antonio Spurs are are locked up in an epic battle, a first-round NBA professional, that's professional basketball if you don't know that, a first-round NBA playoff series, and they each are led by an aging veteran superstar. And this past week, some of the radio, sports radio talk hubbub debate was about these particular veteran superstars because they're getting, well, kind of old, 35, 37. Now, I know to you, depending on your perspective, that that may not seem old or it may seem ancient to you perhaps, but um, these guys are getting old. And in terms of NBA years and professional basketball, and so the debate is about these two particular superstars Are they losing their edge? Are they getting to the point in their career where they've maybe played too long and now they're not as effective as they once had been? 
Well, the radio commentators decided, no, they're not. These two, they're, they're an exception. They're not fading into the limelight yet. But there are some who did, and they went on to list a number of older players back in the day who played for, you know, just a few years too long and lost their effectiveness altogether and didn't finish well. Now, in this particular NBA series, again, if you don't know, the Mavericks are leading. The problem with that is the San Antonio Spurs are, well, the best team in basketball. They have the best record in all of the league, and they're the number one seed in the entire playoff tournament. The Mavericks just barely made it. They just barely snuck into the playoffs at all. They have no business beating the Spurs, but now they are. And now I'm sure this week the the questions will begin to arise. Are the Spurs too tired? Are the Spurs beginning to fade? Are they not finishing well? A a strong season otherwise, are they going to not finish it well? Have they lost their edge? Christians sometimes do that, don't we? Sometimes Christians do what old basketball players do, and they begin to lose their edge. They begin to feel weary or or maybe distracted by other things that have come along and, and taken our eyes off of what is important, or maybe even just pressured by things outside of us in the world around us and and in our own lives. And so we begin to, as it were, lose our edge, so to speak. Hebrews was written for this very reason. This is why this author wrote this particular letter, because he knows, and in his particular audience, he's seeing that we as Christians are prone to wander, as the hymn says. We're prone to focus on our problems because we all have problems. We all have lots of problems. Some of them are more significant than others, and they kind of come and they go, they ebb and they flow, but we focus on our problems. And we may even just focus on what seem to us to be the solutions to our problems. And maybe that's where our attention begins to reside. And so because of that, we take our eyes off of the prize. Now, you might have noticed this morning in our liturgy, I hope you noticed this kind of a subtle difference in the margin a while ago that when Jeff Murray came up here to read from Numbers chapter 1, it was a Lectio Continua reading rather than an Old Testament reading. That means that we're going to go back for a season to the Lectio Continua. That is the continuous reading of one book of the Bible all the way through, at least most of it. We'll skip some parts of it, but as we go, we'll get the gist of what the book of Numbers was about. And, and Jeff of course, inherited the very difficult task of reading all those names. I'm sure as you were following along and listening, you were thinking, is he pronouncing those correctly? I don't know if he was or not. He did a good job. He tried hard. He did a very good job of that. Numbers is an interesting book, and it pairs up really well with the book of Hebrews for some particular reasons, because as you saw there in that reading, God, having redeemed his people from Egypt now is organizing them for their redemptive mission, for their mission to take the promised land as God had promised them that they would. And God has begun to organize them by names, by numbers, as he gathers them on the plains of the desert. And he's organizing them for their task at hand. They have a prize ahead of them. But the book of Numbers tells us all about their various wanderings as they travel through the the wilderness on their way eventually, to the promised land, all of their various wanderings and their temptations to return to their old ways, their old ways being Egypt. 
And throughout the book of Numbers, you see different ways that they do that. They come upon a season in which they have no water. And so they grumble and they want to go back to Egypt. They come upon a season where they have no food and they grumble and they wander and they want to go back to Egypt. They come upon a season when they realize that they're going to face big enemies, bigger than they are. And so they grumble, they wander, they want to go back to Egypt. The years begin to grow long and they wonder, are we ever going to get there? And they begin to wander and want to go back to Egypt. And so Moses does something interesting with them after decades in the desert. He gives them Deuteronomy. Do you know what Deuteronomy is? Deuteronomy is a sermon. Deuteronomy is Moses speaking to the people of the Hebrews and telling them, remember where you've been. Now look at the prize. That's where you're going. Stop wandering. Stop drifting and set your eyes on the prize. That's what Moses does in Deuteronomy. This writer to Hebrews does the same thing. He gives a sermon to the Hebrews aimed at Christians who were tempted to abandon Christianity for their old ways. Judaism, in their case, their Jewish heritage, and they were tempted to abandon their new faith in Christ because of various external pressures and surely internal doubts that came along with those pressures. They didn't just have car trouble and transportation problems. They didn't just run their cell phone through the washing machine in their blue jeans. They didn't just have relationship and dating problems or old age problems, things that we might consider as as real troubles that might cause us discouragement. These people had real external persecutions that they faced. Now, we face the same temptation that they did, but usually in different sorts of forms. You know, as the distance on the timeline from the cross to the contemporary grows and grows, we begin to lose sight of what's behind us. As our memories begin to fade and our doubts begin to grow and other things begin to distract, spiritual lethargy inevitably sets in. We become lethargic. We just kind of forget. And we stop pursuing what God would have us to pursue. This writer wants us to recognize that one of the enormous keys to the Christian life, one of the central important elements of it is you must see Jesus clearly. You must see His greatness as the Son of God. You must see that He fulfills all of the Old Testament, all that's behind you. He fulfills every bit of it. You must see the greatness of Jesus. He says to them, haven't you listened to what you've heard? We're looking forward to the city in heaven, which is yet to come. He says to them, God has spoken. And in his words, he has set before us a race. Are you running it? This is a sermon. A sermon that begins in a unique way to persuade us that God is the God who speaks. And he speaks patient words to us. He speaks patient words. He says long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, there's some mystery about this letter, this epistle to the Hebrews. There's some about it that we don't quite know. But what's clear is that the writer knew his readers. He knew that they were Jewish in their heritage. And so he begins to draw on their heritage by summarizing the Old Testament in one phrase, long ago, 
At many times and in many and various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He summarizes the whole of the Old Testament. Don't you people remember that long ago God spoke to Adam in the garden? That long ago God spoke to Noah as the dust of the fall began to settle on the land? Long ago God spoke to Abraham and the patriarchs. Long ago God spoke to Moses and to Samuel and to Elijah and Elisha, to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. The list goes on and on. Don't you remember how God spoke to the prophets and therefore brought His Word to us as His covenant promises unfolded through the ages? God gave us patient words at many times and in many ways God spoke. Our God speaks patiently. Now, this letter is God continuing to speak. Part of the confusing thing about it is that we don't know who wrote this letter. You know, a lot of times in in the biblical books, we know who wrote them. Not always, but most of the time. In this case, we really don't. And there's lots of speculation as to who wrote Hebrews. A lot of different possibilities. You know, some suggest that Paul must have written it. Paul, the apostle, surely would have been well qualified to do it. He certainly could have. But this letter is completely different than anything that he wrote. It certainly doesn't seem to fit with what Paul wrote. The author doesn't identify himself. Some suggest that Luke maybe wrote it or Barnabas. Some say that a man named Clement from Rome wrote it, perhaps. And some even suggest that Priscilla, one of the, one of the women who's mentioned in the New Testament in the book of Acts perhaps maybe wrote it. Martin Luther suggested that Apollos, that character from the book of Acts again, Apollos maybe wrote it, he says, because Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria. And in Acts 18, Luke tells us that Apollos was an eloquent man. He was competent in the scriptures. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. All of the things that must have been a part of the person who wrote this letter, surely. But really, it's impossible to know. We don't know who wrote it. We do know that the person who did was trained in Scripture. This person quotes continuously from the Old Testament all throughout this letter. There are dozens and dozens of references and quotations from the Old Testament from different parts of it and from the the Jewish traditions of the temple and sacrifices and so forth. And this person knew these things from their own training. You have to realize in their context, this person didn't have a concordance to refer to. You know, They couldn't just go down to the Christian bookstore and pull another version of the Bible off the shelf and buy it and look up something new. They probably had a scroll, handwritten, passed down along the ages to which they referred, but they knew the Scriptures. They also were trained in rhetoric. The first four verses, part of which we read a moment ago, of this letter are what some commentators say the most perfect Greek sentence in the New Testament. The first four verses are all one long sentence that are filled with rhetorical flair. It's it's really a, a beautiful sentence. And so this person was rhetorically gifted. He was also pastorally gifted. He understood these Roman Christians, probably in Rome, situation, and, and he addressed their problems and their concerns with his own concern. We really don't know who he is. We don't know who wrote it, but we do know that the readers were Jewish Christians. And we, we think, I think, many do, that they probably were in Rome. 
most likely, there's all kinds of evidence throughout the letter that they were probably in Rome. In fact, at the very end of the letter, in Hebrews 13, the writer says that those who are from Italy send their greetings to you. And so probably he was writing back to Italy, back to the Roman church with these words. And we suspect that this was written about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Luke gives a little bit of insight in Acts chapter 2. Following the the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, Luke explains that after the ascension, after Jesus rose back to heaven, that the Christians gathered together, and there were about 120 of them. If you can imagine that, in all the world, there were fewer Christians than there are in this room right now. They gathered together to figure out what now. And then Pentecost came, and the Spirit came and filled the disciples, and Peter spoke and preached to the people, to all these people who had visited Jerusalem from other lands coming for the Feast of Passover. And Peter spoke and preached to them the gospel, and they all heard it in their own languages. And Luke tells us in chapter 2, he says, In the crowd there were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Now, proselytes were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And so there were in the crowd visitors from Rome, Jewish visitors from Rome. And then Peter preaches this sermon, and Luke tells us that about 3,000 people became Christians on that day. And so there were Jewish Christians in Rome. These people surely returned to their homes, taking their newfound faith with them. And you had the first church planters. And they were going off to plant and to begin churches in these new cities, in these new places where they'd not been before, where Christianity certainly had not been. We know, we suspect, it seems pretty clear, that this letter was written before the year 70 A.D. Because in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And if that had been the case already, this writer, writing much about the temple and the practices in it as though they were current would have referred to that, and so it seems clear that he wrote before the year 70. And at that point, now the church in Rome had been there for about 30 years. About 30 years. Growing slowly, surely struggling in many ways. And these Hebrews in Rome were enduring persecution for the second time. The first time probably was, and we know some of this from references in the letter itself, The first time probably was in about the year 50 A.D. when the emperor Claudius had had enough with the Christians and the Jews in Rome. And he said, all right, that's enough. Out. Christians and Jews, out of the city. I don't want to see you anymore. And he he booted them out of the city. They had to leave. They had to leave their things behind. They had to give up their land and their property, their possessions, and leave the city. But the second time, the second persecution, which they seem now at the point of this letter to be facing, is worse, much worse. There's a new Roman emperor. Nero is his name. And you may know something about Nero. Perhaps in the year 64 AD, there's a famous event that happened in Rome. Rome burned. And fire set through the city and burned much of the city And, of course, so many people were deeply affected by that. And a rumor began that Nero was the one who set the fire, that he was the one who called for it because he wanted to to raise part of the city so he could build it back up in his own sort of image. 
that rumor persisted and Nero couldn't get rid of the rumor, and so he blamed the Christians. Why would he blame the Christians? Tacitus was a historian in the first century. He explained that Christians were hated in the ancient culture, in Rome in particular, because they would not worship, they would not worship the emperor. They refused to participate in the cultural elements of the day, and so they were hated, and so they were easy to blame for something like this. And now the first persecution ten years before they had endured, the second one is worse, and now the writer is worried. And so he begins to say in chapter 2, verse 1, we read it, he says, some of you are drifting away. In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, some of you have become dull of hearing. In chapter 6, he says, some of you have left the faith altogether. And so he says, haven't you been listening to what you've heard? God has spoken patiently throughout the ages. Don't go back now. Hold fast. God has also spoken not just patient words, but final words. He says this, long ago God spoke by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In these last days... God has spoken through His Son. Now, if, if this was written before 70 A.D., which we're pretty sure it was, why would, he, why would the writer say, in these last days? Why would he call them last days? He doesn't mean these recent days. The word he uses is eschaton. In this eschaton, this last age, eschatology being what we think of the book of Revelation, the end times, he says, in these last days, in these end times, God has spoken to us through his Son. Why would he say that? Why, why would he say not recently, but last days? Because the Son is God's last word to us. He has nothing else to say. Many times and in many ways, God spoke through the prophets, but all of that was building towards a climax. And now God has spoken to us in a new way through his Son. And this word is final. The writer's claim on this is just short of closing the canon of Scripture, as John does later in Revelation. It's to say, don't be looking for more revelation because it's not coming. Jesus has come. It's God's final word. I mean, when the Creator who's spoken through messengers through the ages finally sends His appointed heir, the very instrument of creation itself, to speak He says, don't expect anything more. This is the last of it. Christ was God's final word. And that means at least this. Christ is sufficient. He's sufficient for us. Now these Hebrews were losing steam, remember? They had endured that first persecution. There was now a second persecution. But that first one is described in chapter 10. In verse 32, we read an interesting little historical account of that first persecution that had happened some years before. He writes this, Remember the former days when, after you were enlightened, that is, after you came to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you had a better possession, an abiding one. At that time, they joyfully gave up their possessions. Claudius the emperor had booted them out of the city. Get out of my city now. There's no room for you here. 
They had to leave their things behind, and the writer says they joyfully accepted that. Claudius's expulsion of them was surely inconvenient. It had to be extremely hard. I mean, you can just imagine here in Dallas, Texas, if the mayor proclaimed an edict, all Christians out of the city, I've had enough of you. There's no place for you here now. Get up and leave. Be gone by tonight. You'd have to leave your things behind as the the military, the forces came rolling down your street to make sure that you were gone. Can you imagine how difficult and how complicated, how hard surely it would be to endure that? But he says to them, by faith, they could see that they had a greater inheritance. They had a greater possession to look forward to, an abiding one. But now the The fires burn even hotter, and he's worried about them. And he says to them, Is God's word to you in Christ enough? For us, it's really the same kind of thing. You know, the the revelation of God has given to us in Jesus is sufficient. Or is it to us? Is it? You know, we may not fear an emperor or civil authorities, although no society is forever immune to that, for sure. But we do tend to drift. We tend to drift away from from what we claim that we believe. Why do we do that? Christian leaders commonly identify three major reasons for that, for why Christians tend to drift, to become lethargic, and to fade away from what they believe. One of them is desire for money and material things. We're a very material culture, a very material country and society, We have things. We have things that these Hebrew Christians could have never imagined. And we take comfort. We all do in our things. We enjoy things and we desire more even often enough. The second one, the second reason is that we desire peace and pleasure and worldly enjoyments. All those are good things. You know, we long for those things. We want to have peace. We want to have pleasure and enjoyment. We want to have fun in life and And we don't want to be bored. And one of our biggest problems in life is that life is boring. If you sit around and look at it, life is boring. And so we fill it with things to give ourselves pleasure. The third reason is, of course, very predictable. And that is that we experience trauma of some kind. We experience some crisis, some loss, some emergency. A spouse abandons you. A child dies. A house burns down. Some job is lost. Something happens, a trauma, that causes you to begin to doubt, to begin to waver, to begin to stray and to drift. And so you do drift because at that moment, your hope in Christ doesn't seem to be enough. And so we rush out to medicate ourselves and, and to do something to address our problems. You know, we, we rush out to buy books about the newest big event sort of thing. You know, it might be a near-death experience sort of thing. And, and we rush out to, to, to take it in, to read the book, to see the movie or whatever it is, so that we can maybe learn something new because we've begun to doubt. We've begun to wonder, is Christ enough? And we don't even ask ourselves that question. We're not even thoughtful enough to say, is Jesus enough? He's the one that I'm doubting. No, we just kind of drift away and we go to seek some other medication to strengthen ourselves, some big event, some novelty. And we wonder if we'll learn something new by it. But then all the while we neglect what God has actually said. God has given his final words in Christ. And his words haven't changed. 
Christology is one of the big parts of this letter. And we'll see more of that as we go, much more. And here in this verse, he says that through Christ, God created the world. In other words, the Son was there at the moment of creation. And so this writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13, right at the end of the letter, he says to them, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So don't be led away by anything else. Christ is God's final word, and he hasn't changed. And then last, he tells us that God speaks effective words. Effective words. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I saw this past week uh, a video that somebody posted online of a home, and it was a mother who was taking the video, walking through her home with her video camera, following her two young boys. They had to be maybe three and four years old. They had gotten into a bag of flour. I can't imagine how this would have happened, because what they had done on the video, these boys had spread a bag of flour all over the house. I mean, there was flour all over the floor and the furniture. There was flour as she moved the camera up to the wall on the top of the picture frames. There was flour spread on the the window treatments in the front of the room. There was flour everywhere. I don't know how that happens. I mean, how does a three- and four-year-old get a hold of a five-pound bag of flour and then cause such havoc and destruction? But this mom had responded in an interesting way. She saw what had happened, and she came in with a video camera to discover what had happened. And she came videoing, watching, following her boys, and they were playing in the flower, sitting on the floor, spreading it around and throwing it up in the air. And all she could say as she walked through the house quietly was, Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's all she could say. She had no idea what to do. These Hebrews are kind of like that. They're seeing the chaos unfold around them in Rome. Their lives threatened. Their possessions threatened. Their their very livelihood in total doubt. And all they can do is say, Oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh, they have no idea how to deal with it. And so the writer of this letter says to them, listen, listen to what you've heard. God's word is effective because what he's given you is himself. That's what he says in these words, doesn't he? The writer doesn't point the people to their problems. He doesn't even tell them what the solutions are need to be what they must now do other than to remind them of the prize. This epistle is one of the truly great Christological books of the Bible. Again, we'll see much of that as we go through it. And this writer wants these people to see that. Jesus is greater than all the prophets were. Jesus is greater than the angels even. Jesus is greater than Moses was. Jesus is greater than all of the priests throughout all the ages were. In fact, Jesus fulfills every word of that Old Testament that you already have in your hands. God has given to you himself. He says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That is, all that's weighty and significant about God is shown to us in Jesus. 
He says, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. That is, the exact character of God is shown to us in Jesus. He's the very word of God himself. And he didn't come to us with some esoteric philosophy. Rather, he came to us with righteousness. And he came to us with reconciliation. He fulfilled all that God had spoken before. And in restoring man to God, he is completely, thoroughly, and utterly effective. Anthony was a third century monk. He was uh, uh, kind of the first of the, the ascetic types, the, the ones who emphasized kind of his, his worldly living in the face of God. And uh, he was the first of those who really kind of became sort of a celebrity. Anthony moved himself out into the wilderness to pursue his asceticism, his monkishness. And people kind of began to follow out of curiosity to see what this man was about. And for decades, he spent uh, alone out in the wilderness in different places where he lived, in caves and in old forts and things. And over the course of time, in his old age, many began to seek after him and his wisdom and his experience Students would come and follow him and stay with him. And even the Emperor Constantine wrote a letter to him. Now, Emperor Constantine, in about 300 or so A.D., called himself a Christian and became, by his own profession, a Christian. And the emperor wrote a letter to Anthony. Now, I don't know how the postal service worked in those days. Anthony lived down in the desert somewhere, and somehow some guy on a camel came riding up with a letter from the emperor himself. And the emperor was seeking after Anthony's advice, praising Anthony for his life and seeking prayer from him. And Anthony's students marveled at that. They said, can you believe you've got a letter from the emperor himself? And he's not out to kill you. He's actually asking for your help. He's asking for your prayer. And Anthony ignored it until finally, as his students marveled at it, Anthony finally said, he said, The books of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, commands us every day, but we don't heed what they tell us. Why do you marvel at the words of a mere man? God has spoken to us by his Son. Marvel at that. Our God speaks. Throughout all the ages, he gave increasingly more and more and more of himself until in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. We must listen to what we've heard so that we might not drift away from it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, O Lord, we pray that you would give to us increasing faith. O Lord, would you make it so that we might walk after your ways and follow you in Christ, in faith, recognizing that he is your word. We pray, Lord, that in that you would give us increasing ability to walk in your ways and to be pleasing in your sight by faith in Christ and his righteousness. Amen. Good morning. I uh, want to thank, uh, thank everybody for the uh, continued comments and encouragement on my sport coat this morning. Uh, in spite of what Warren Sibley 
and Brian Welch say, this is not periwinkle, it is blue. <laughs> so last month, um, we did a beautiful thing. Aaron and Kara have served in our church for quite some time and done so faithfully and beautifully in the way that they've loved us. And last month, in response, we loved them by donating $7,705 for the North Portland project that they're going to work on. And we praise the Lord for that. Also, as part of the almsgiving this month, there was a laptop that was gifted uh, to the deacons uh, for gospel encouragement to a friend of our church. For that, we are also grateful. Now, as the Lord has been gracious and merciful to us, we get to celebrate His abundance and generosity by bringing our gifts, offerings, and alms together. Our gifts and offerings may be placed in the offering box in the center of the auditorium. Deacons will be on either side to collect alms. And as always, elders will be up front uh, praying for those specific needs uh, for those who want to come and share with them. Brothers and sisters, our Lord is certainly good. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice and love, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We stand. <clears throat> 